In 2017, the Academy Awards gave the Oscar for Best Picture to La La Land. And then a minute later, they took it back and gave it to Moonlight instead. What if we could do that every year? It's time for the Moonlight Awards, a journey through movie history. One year, five nominees, and one new Best Picture at a time. Now, here are your hosts, Rachel Shavitz and Aaron Keck. And welcome into the first official episode, the first installment of the Moonlight Awards. Really excited about for realsies this time launching this project. <laughs> I am Aaron Keck. I am Rachel Savitz. And we are your hosts for this journey through movie history award style. We are going to go year by year, episode by episode, starting in 1930. That is this episode and going all the way through 2009 so we can get a little bit of distance between the present day and the year we're studying. And we are going to go back and revisit the best movies of that year. And we're going to do it award style. What are the five movies that stood out the most from that year? And we're talking about the movies that have stood the test of time, that people still watch today, that people still love today, that critics still talk about, that scholars still appreciate. What are the five that stood out and what is the one actual best picture after history has had a chance to weigh in and all is said and done? Exactly. And definitely trying to think about what are the films that changed film going forward. So what are the ones that inspired the next generation of filmmakers or even that current generation of filmmakers? And people did it differently after this one came out or people you know, ripped them off just mercilessly. So it's really interesting because a lot of times you don't know that in its moment. It's only with this kind of 2020 hindsight that you can say, oh, this film changed the game, raised the bar. So we're really interested in that, looking at that too, because that's not the kind of perspective you can have in the moment. It's only possible when you're looking in the past. And just as a reminder, this is not just our opinions. We'll weigh in with our opinions about movies, but we're actually trying to be objective. So we pulled a bunch of different sources. We're looking at the sight and sound critics and directors all-time best list that came out in 2012. The BBC in 2018 came out with a list of the top 100 foreign language films of all time. 2015, their top 100 American films. The Hollywood Reporter did a survey in 2014. Empire came out with a top 100 list. We looked at the AFI's top 100. Other significant recent lists of the best movies of all time. We looked at IMDb to see which movies are still getting watched by people. Uh, I gotta pause on this. Is there a better metric than IMDb for determining what movies people are still watching today? That's a tough one. It's I a think, tough one, yeah, right? Yeah, I think it's pretty good. I rely a little bit more on Box Office Mojo. Okay. So when I look at sort of the enduring legacy of a film, it's ticket sales and it's DVD sales and things like that are a really good metric, but it's different in the age of Netflix. Right. So it's almost like that used to be my methodology and now I need yeah. a new one and Netflix is not sharing their data. <laughs> so I haven't gotten... Damn you, Netflix. I know. So I haven't gotten there yet. No. But for the older things or things that aren't streaming... I, I think IMDb and, and Box Office Mojo, for the purposes of what we're doing here, right. is perfectly reasonable. And Box Office Mojo, for those older movies, will give us a good sense of what movies people went to the theaters at the yeah. time and saw. Right. But what movies from 1930 are people watching in 2020? That's the question right. that we're trying to answer. Sure. And are they getting re-released? And are, are they getting re-released? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that absolutely Which, true. Uh, 
that's not always a function of what's popular. It's also a function of you know who has the power to re-release a exactly. film. Exactly. But uh, it is something to, to one of the factors to consider, yeah. certainly. So in addition to all of that, we've also reached out to a bunch of different renowned film scholars. We've got all of the results of that as well. So we're factoring those in. You can get the full list of scholars who are participating on our website, which is themoonlightawards.com. So when we talk about what are the five nominees, what is the winner, it's not just us talking. We've got actual data on we this. We do. Yeah, highly this. reliable, so, subjective. Highly reliable. <laughs> <laughs> the most reliable subjectivity can be found here. That's right. Let's talk about 1930 in cinema. Where does the industry stand at this point? Yeah, so one of the really interesting things about 1930 is it's the year that the motion picture production code is established and sort of adopted. And so this is in response to films that were coming out in the 20s and freaking parents out. They'd send their kids with a nickel or two to go see the movies, and they'd go see these Warner Brothers shoot 'em up gangster movies, kind of like put yourself in Macaulay Culkin's shoes in Home Alone, <laughs> right? Keep the change, you filthy animal. That kind of movie is what the, the kids were seeing, and um, the parents didn't like that. And there was also not just violence, but a lot of wanton morals, right? Loose women who never got married by the end of the film, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. People didn't like it. So they started thinking about boycotting and doing all kinds of things that were really going to affect the bottom line of the studios and the uh, exhibitors, the theaters. So in order to avoid what they were worried about, which was the American government starting to put restrictions and censorship on films from a top-down approach, they thought they would collaborate with someone who could stand in for the government and they could work behind the scenes to make sure that that kind of restriction and legal action never happened. So they did exactly that. And they established the Motion Picture Production Code that had a whole bunch of rules about what was acceptable and what was not. And if you wanted your film to be released with the stamp of approval that let all the families know that this was appropriate, you had to follow all of these rules. It doesn't really get strictly enforced until 1934. Mm-hmm. So for the first couple of years of our podcast, we're going to be able to talk about the pre-code films, which are way better. Yes. <laughs> it's the Wild West. They can do whatever they want, especially the, the non-American films. And so 1930 is a cool time in global film history because it's pre-code and pre-war And so we got a lot of brilliant European filmmakers and industries that are still flourishing and they're making great films. It's the beginning of the talkie era, so Mm -hmm. they're doing really cool stuff with technology. 1930 is a fun year. Yeah, and you mentioned, uh, you talked about this more (laughs) at length, but it's a fascinating story of how prior to World War II, Hollywood wasn't dominant, and it wasn't until after World War II that the American film industry really takes over. Mostly because the European film industries were destroyed. Mm -hmm. The resources that the the countries had been pumping into their national art forms, such as cinema, were no longer available for that. People were escaping. People were dying. It was a very, very different scene in Europe than it was in the States. And so Hollywood was able to continue churning out films when all these other industries just kind of had to close up shop for a long time. And then, of course, I mean, it's maybe a podcast for another day, but like there's a a discussion about the Nazi-supported films, and that's a whole other ballgame. But in general, the European film industry suffered mightily during the war, and America's just flourished. And that's where things stand uh, heading into 1930. So our five nominees, and we announced them last time, Lodge Dior, 
All Quiet on the Western Front, which actually did win the Oscar for Best Picture, right? Right. Animal Crackers, Anna Christie, and The Blue Angel, which, to be honest, Marlena Dietrich made two movies in 1930 that both could have and should have been nominees, the other one being Morocco, but we decided to spread the wealth a little bit. So right. not Morocco, but Blue Angel. I think Anna Christie's the beneficiary of that, because I think it would have been Morocco over Anna Christie. Yeah. But give it to Garbo, Anna Christie, and then <laughs> the Blue Angels is our last nominee. So let's start with Lodge d'Or. What okay. are your thoughts? So Lodge d'Or is a classic kind of surrealist film. What I love about this era is it's this collision of worlds and artists. And so we see people like Salvador Dali and Luis Buñuel coming together to work on a project. I mean, could the stars be better aligned? Yeah. It reminds me of that scene from that Woody Allen film, Midnight in Paris, where we see this collision of writers and artists and filmmakers and painters and all of these people sort of coming together and imagining what yeah. Paris must have been like. And that was an that illusion. Era. This is real. Right. This happened. Yeah. Exactly. But yeah. just this idea of the, the 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 genius in different walks of art coming together and to make one work is pretty pretty amazing. And that is a perfect summary of what came together to help make Lodge Dora happen. Well, kid, now we're going to be separated. Maybe we can do something together later on, when the war's over. Yes, kid. You give me your address, I'll give you mine. You can't get both of us in one day. All quiet on the Western Front. So, I gotta admit, I haven't seen this movie since AP European <laughs> history class in high school. I remember it being really good. Well, yes, it's very good. And I think we were talking before we started recording about is the reason this one's still being watched so much because of the AP European it history might students? Be a little bit, yeah. <laughs> it is It is definitely the case. Like 1930, you look at IMDb user votes, there are four movies that really stand out Lost Your Animal Crackers, All Quiet, and Blue Angel. And All Quiet on the Western Front, I think, has more votes than all the other movies from 1930 combined. Easily. But that might just be a function of IMDb. But it's also a great film. It is, and yeah. And so there are so many things, that, but I'm going to try to, you know, be brief. The thing that I could love about All Quiet on the Western Front, it's produced by Carl Lemley, and he's one of, he's the only Hollywood mogul who ever was openly stood up to the Nazis and, mm -hmm. and came out against fascism in his home country. He was very anti-war. He was very political. He wasn't a head-in-the-sand kind of filmmaker or producer. He really wanted to make pictures that made a point. And this is what he thought was going to be the last anti-war film that would ever have to be made. Because after everyone saw this, they would understand the futility of war and they would not do it again. And of course, so sadly for all of us, it wasn't to be. But I loved that sentiment. I loved the, the love and the money and the resources poured into this film and the reason that they made it, which I think yeah. helps for some of the comparatively to other films, makes me want to vote for this one because I think it was made with such 
honorable intentions. Although they did say the same thing about the actual war itself when it was being waged. Like, yes, this is great. We're going to go through all of this, but this is the war to end all wars. And yeah. what is it about World War One that everyone thinks like waging it or depicting it is going to make people wake up and they just never do? I don't know. And I think also it wasn't that soon after the end of the war that mm-hmm. the anti-war films and literature was being churned out. And yeah. that's an interesting thing, too. I think a lot of times we need a generation of breathing room before we're willing to really engage with Vietnam or the Gulf War or some of these other equally futile, ridiculous wars. But World War One, anti-World War One stuff was coming out within 18 months. People were ready to For sure, yeah. deal with it. Um, and then even within 18 months of the end of the war, within 18 months of the beginning of the war, yeah. there was, yeah, okay, animal crackers. As I say, you all know what a moose is. A moose runs around on the floor and eats cheese and is chased by the cats. The elks, on the other hand, live up in the hills. And in the spring, they come down for their annual convention. It is very interesting to watch them come to the water hole. And you should see them run when they find it is only a water hole. What they're looking for is an alcohol. One morning, I shot an elephant in my pajamas. How he got in my pajamas, I don't know. Okay, Animal Crackers, again, totally belongs in this top five, but it bears no resemblance to the, the top five, right? <laughs> so we've got the Marx Brothers figuring out what their shtick is going to be yeah. and really honing it and, and becoming masters of their craft and, and in many ways setting us up for what quintessential American humor is going to be like and look like and sound like. And I think it's so interesting that we have openly Jewish characters, openly Jewish actors and and artists working on this. And then we have this unapologetic, goofy, lovable thing happening. And, and, it, and we're standing it up in contrast to Lodge Door and All Quiet <laughs> on the Western Front. And it's just like... It's the movies that are never going to get nominated for Oscars, we're going to nominate them here. Kind of. And yeah. it makes me think about the moment, our current moment, and what people are going to say in 100 years. You know, yeah. I would never think Jim Carrey or any of the other physical comics of our era would stand the test of time. But, but who knows? Who knows? Yeah. I lived in China for a year and I showed Liar Liar in my class. Uh-huh. And it was like rolling on the ground people couldn't (laughs) deal they loved it so 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 much and it just makes me think that like sometimes physical comedy is just this transcendent thing oh yeah and it it doesn't matter about the story doesn't matter about anything it brings humans together and uh, the Marx Brothers do it beautifully and I mean so much great cinematic comedy is totally like lowbrow physical comedy like and even some of the the people that we hold up as being kind of elevated Jacques Tati or Charlie Chaplin or Rowan Atkinson is Mr. Bean. Right. Like it's it's timeless, it's universal. And I think it's human. Yes. I think we get soaked into this idea of cinema as high art, but in this moment especially, it was still fighting for its place. Mm-hmm. It was not so long ago, it was a sideshow, peep show, working class, pay your nickel and stay in the theater all day because it's got air conditioning kind of a uh, medium. And these people like Von Sternberg and Salvador Dali and Buñuel, they're trying really hard to elevate it to something more than that. And the Marx Brothers are going, oh, yeah. oh They've maybe got not. air conditioning. Let's go <laughs> to the theater for air conditioning. So much high art is low art. Like the same thing is true with literature. Like the yeah. first great novel of all time is Don Quixote, which is, and this shocked me when I first like actually started engaging with that. It's 600 pages of poop jokes. It's totally. hilarious. And I think 
what we see as film history sort of progresses is the people who are able to thread that needle. Yes. Spielberg comes to mind mm-hmm. are the ones who who survive because they get that this is what people want to do with their spare time and their spare money and they're not always ready for high art. But h- how can you do the like Indiana Jones jokes and beautiful production design and sweeping scores and beautiful cinematography. And and I think that Spielberg and others like him have figured out how to thread that. One more thing to say about Animal Crackers, and this is true of all of these early talky comedy movies. These are folks who came out of vaudeville and they come out of stage and in these early movies, they're still pausing for laughter. Yes. And that doesn't change until I think the screwball comedies in the later 30s. Yeah, but if you think about sitcoms on TV, in yeah. many ways, we haven't changed. You know, depending on the medium, there is still the pause for laughter in some, for sure. some of our, our work. Yeah. Anna Christie. Gee, I needed that bad. All right, all right. <laughs> sure. You look all in. Have you been on a bat? No. Traveling. Day and a half on a train. Had to sit up all night in a dirty cord stew. I thought I'd never get here. So we have this idea of a screen, a silent screen goddess, and people are worried: Is she going to make the transition? Is she going to be able to, to speak? And she had this opportunity to sort of like trip and fall into what's the word I want? Like unknown Oblivion. Oblivion, yeah. yeah. Like so many uh, actors and actresses yeah. of her era did. Norma Desmond, oh. Lena Lamont. Names we don't even know right. because we weren't around for silent film and now they're gone. Yeah. You know, they burned up in the Fox Vault fire or yeah, something. Yeah. And so I think like what I love about it is that Gar- we have Garbo. Yeah. We, we know her and our students know her because she didn't fall on her face and she was able to not just speak but act. She's a brilliant physical actress in her face and um i just love sometimes i'm just thrilled that film exists because it's a cap encapsulation of talent or a time period or something like that and i'm just so glad garbo made films so we can watch them and that they're preserved speaking of great actresses Marlena Dietrich, Blue Angel. Blue Angel. So this is the one we chose over Morocco, though not not for a ton of good reasons, just because we couldn't give uh, Dietrich everything. Right. She, <laughs> I, I mean, mean we, can. we could. We yeah. could. I mean, as soon as I said it, I was like, or we could. There was a, there's a character in this movie who tried. It just doesn't end well. <laughs> True. <laughs> so here's where we get brilliant talent coming together again, very similar to the Lodge. So we've got Joseph von Sternberg, who works with Dietrich many, many times. I think maybe eight films together or something like that. And Dietrich, she, this film and Dietrich in general are worth our list because to the point we were making earlier, this inspired for generations. She as a human and as a character and as a symbol continued on. She was a feminist icon. She has been a lesbian icon. She is a maybe by her own wants or maybe just because of who she was has become this stand in for 
the power of female sexuality, the ability to be a powerful woman, all of these things. And this is happening by, you know, a German immigrant in America in 1929. You know, it's just amazing. Her story is spectacular and she's so awesome. Yeah. All right. So those are our five nominees. Going through the data that we gathered, I am fascinated by, you know, looking at all of these critics' lists of the best movies of all time. No one ever thinks to sort them by year. So I sorted them by year. Everyone goes like, here's the number one, here's the number two, here's the number three, but no one splits them up. So I sorted That's them by genius, year. That's your genius, Aaron. Yeah, we'll go with that. <laughs> this is my free time, what I do with it. <laughs> so it's fascinating to look at how different years are reflected in these lists. Like there are some years where there's one movie in particular, like a Citizen Kane or a Godfather. Actually, 1981 is another example, Raiders of the Lost Ark, you mentioned Spielberg, where that's the only movie that gets mentioned on all of these lists, but it gets mentioned a whole bunch of times. There are other years where every list is naming, oh, and this one, and this one, and this one, and the list just builds up. And then there are years where just nothing gets mentioned at all uh, (laughs) on any of these. Sight and Sound, AFI, BBC, Entertainment None of these mention any of these. And the only one that I was able to find for 1930, Leonard Maltin, at the very end of the 20th century, came out with his list of the best movies of the 20th century. And he mentioned All Quiet on the Western Front yeah. on it. And that was it. Wow. Uh, just complete crickets on everything else. Which And it's interesting that Maltin did it for All Quiet on the Western Front because we were talking uh, earlier. There's literally only one year from 1930 to 2009 where just no movie appears on any list. And right. We'll get to that later, but 1930 was almost, almost one of them. Almost one of them. For IMDb ratings, we mentioned it. All Quiet on the Western Front is far and away the most watched movie. Blue Angel is definitely second. Animal Crackers is third. Lost hmm. Dior is fourth. Hmm. The panelists yes. who weighed in. We gave them a list of a number of different movies, semi-finalists to consider, and we're, we're pulling our, our finalists from this. So Anna Christie, 68 total points, and we're doing, uh, we're doing ranked voting here the way they do it for the Oscars. So your first place choice gets 10 points, your second place choice gets nine. Uh, you mentioned Blood of a Poet last time. Yeah. Uh, that was actually the sixth place wow. one with 73. Morocco, Mm -hmm. uh, the other Marlena Dietrich, was their fifth place choice with 86. And then it's those top four. It's Blue Angel, All Quiet, Animal Crackers, uh, and Lodge Dior. Lodge Dior is fourth with 95 points. Animal Crackers, the film scholars love it. Yeah. 103 points. Wow. Uh, And then you've got your top two, and I think these really are the top two from 1930. You've got All Quiet on the Western Front and the Blue Angel. Looking at user votes on IMDb, All Quiet on the Western Front is the clear winner there. For our film scholars, All Quiet is definitely number two with 115 points, but far and away, the winner for the scholars is the Blue Angel with 157. That is just so fantastic. Yeah. I wonder if part of that has to do with the fact that as we were talking about what what are the films that changed the way filmmaking was made, I think there has been a lot of ripping off of All Quiet on the Western Front, not mm-hmm. just remakes, but redoing a lot of the what is it like to be a soldier in the trenches and let's talk about the the futility and absurdity of war. And we've seen it done many, 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 many times. And I wonder if part of the reason our scholars who see a lot of films uh, might prefer Blue Angel is because we don't see that kind of film very often yeah. and certainly don't see a character or an actress like Dietrich very often. So I wonder if part of why we love Blue Angel more is because it's 
of its uniqueness. It says something that you don't hear said. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas All Quiet on the Western Front, yeah, it's an anti-war movie. It's a great anti-war movie, just like all these other ones. That, exactly. Yeah. And it was the it did it best and it did it first. First, yep. And that is to be commended and lauded. I mean, the Nazis threw a fit when it was screened in Germany and it was banned for years, decades. That makes it worth my vote. But um, <laughs> I feel like I might throw in my my hat with the Blue Angel crowd here and just say that I feel like it is unique and different and making an interesting point in a way that we don't see very often, and that makes it stand out more for me. We should talk before we start about which movie we're actually going to reward the winner, because I've got this oh. fake envelope here. <gasps> Uh, but as I open it up, I don't know if we agree on which of these two is the actual well, winner. Well, how are you feeling about it? I'm feeling blue. Okay, um, okay. I'm feeling Blue Angel. It's I finally got a chance to watch it for the first time. And it is a... I'm not a fan of disturbing movies, generally uh-huh. speaking. And this is a, a very disturbing mm-hmm. and troubling movie mm-hmm. that doesn't end with a resolution that you want. But it's so compelling and it's so fascinating. And you're right. Like, it's a story that never yeah. gets told in any other way. So, And I feel that her character, this measurer of men, right? She, she has full control over mm-hmm. her view, right? And that is something we haven't copied enough. Yeah. All right. I've got the envelope. Our yeah. nominees, Lodge Dior, All Quiet on the Western Front, Animal Crackers, Anna Christie, and The Blue Angel. And the winner is... <laughs> the Blue Angel! Oh! Our first Moonlight Award Go of all time. To the Blue Angel. I love it. Accepting on behalf of the Blue Angel is Marlena Dietrich. Marlena, how do you feel? Better now. For a few minutes, I wasn't so sure. So sorry, Academy, you got it wrong that time. You got it wrong that time. You almost got it right. Close. There's going to be much more of a difference uh, between us and the Academy in future years. (laughs) I'm sure there will be. (laughs) (laughs) All right. That's 1930. Let's move on to 1931. Okay, do. Our five nominees for the year 1931, and again, taking everything into consideration, what critics and scholars have recognized. We've got our votes from all of our panelists. We'll talk about those next episode in alphabetical order. City Lights, Mm -hmm. great Chaplin movie. Totally. Dracula, uh, Dracula's companion piece, Frankenstein. (laughs) M, Another great German movie. Uh, didn't get a chance to... We, we're not doing the 20s right now, so we didn't get a chance to reward Fritz Lang for Metropolis. Maybe he comes back for M. For his body of work. And the final <laughs> nominee is a great Jimmy Cagney movie, The Public, Public Enemy. Public Enemy. Great. So how do you want to do this? You want to talk about them a little bit this time? You want to wait for the next one? I think we leave people wanting more. Yeah, let's do it. Awesome. You guys know you want to hear about these movies. This has been the Moonlight Awards 1930 edition. Check out our website, The Moonlight Awards. You can get a lot more data, including all of the votes from our scholars and the full list of who our panelists are, and a lot more there. It's been fun. It has been. Until next time. Absolutely.